Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Megan Murphy. Today I'm joined by Patrick Jenkins, our banking editor, and Brooke Masters, our chief regulation correspondent. It's been a busy few days in the banking world, as usual. We've had the fallout from Ireland's restructuring of its financial system. We've had, again, more murmurings over bonuses and compensation in the city. But this week, the big news is obviously this morning's Swiss finish on the Basel's rules for Switzerland's biggest banks and what that means for them, UBS and Credit Suisse. And we're also going to be chatting to Brooke about the future of financial regulation reform as Regulators look ahead from the new Basel rules. And finally, we'll be discussing whether or not it is possible for bankers to form a new ethical compact with the city, which was the subject of a dialogue this morning between some of the city's grandees. So first, uh, let's turn to Patrick and Brooke. We've got the Swiss finish. Does this mean it's the end for the Swiss banks? Patrick? Yeah, so this is what everyone's been waiting for, really. The Swiss regulator has come out and said what it requ- is going to require all the Swiss banks to to hold in terms of capital. Uh, it goes further than the Basel Committee did a few weeks ago for, in terms of defining the global standard, hence the term Swiss finish. Um, and it basically, if you add, add up all the numbers, it's going to ask for a 19% um, capital ratio. Um, if you compare that roughly with the kind of with about 9%, uh, which Basel defined. We know that they've set a minimum of 7% core tier one ratio. Uh, and then we're expecting another one or 2% in terms of um, what's called a systemic buffer. They haven't set the, set the number yet, but that'll be uh, an extra bit on top for the big banks. So for the likes of Credit Suisse and, and, and UBS, we're talking this 19% figure, 10% of which is basically equity, uh, then another 3%, which can be equity or contingent capital. That's, in other words, debt that can be converted to equity. Uh, and then the final 6% is is this so-called systemic buffer, which can be held in, in, in that, that contingent form. Um, so it goes, I mean, the numbers sound very big, but I think the market overall is relatively um, pleased by the number in the sense that it's not the actual core equity bit of it is less than uh, the rumours that suggested in the past few weeks. And so the shares of both banks are up slightly this morning. Um, the word on everyone's lips this morning is also cocos, 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 and, and what this means for that market in terms of um, spurring this new form of contingent capital. What are people saying about that uh, in terms of the feasibility of that market? Well, interestingly, UBS was um, had a conference call this morning with their finance director um, where he said that if if the whole of this 9% bit of the of the total capital ratio uh, were to be raised via contingent capital or COCOs, um, that would mean 36 billion of issuance. We think the number for Credit Suisse is, pro- uh, is probably about the same. We haven't uh, been through the numbers in, in detail yet. But that is an enormous number just for two banks. If you extended that across the world, if the Basel Committee extended this use of COCOs right across the systemic banking sector you could roughly multiply that well the 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 ubs number or certainly a portion of it by you know 
30, let's say. So you get to some vast number for the global system, which UBS this morning suggested could be itself systemically problematic. So it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling problem. Yeah, Brooke, what have people been saying to you about this? Because it's quite contentious still. Well, it's interesting. There was this gathering of other regulators from around Europe that happened to be taking place this morning in, in London. And the um, head of banking supervision at uh, from the Bank of Spain, Jose Marie Roldan, was deeply skeptical. He said, you know, remember, before the crisis, we all thought that preferred shares and you know, subordinated debt were the answer, you know, a cheap way of solving people's capital needs. And they proved completely and utterly useless in the crisis. And so he is very wary of you know, touting a new financial innovation as the solution to all of our problems. Um, interestingly, the German regulators who were there from the Boffin were also skeptical, but more from the market point of view, that who's really going to buy this stuff? I've heard from a number of regulators that they're deeply concerned because one of the main investors in bank debt are things like – um, bond funds and pension funds who, by the nature of their investment covenants, are not allowed to hold equity. So if you know they are holding a co- if they bought a cocoa and it converted on them and became equity, they would instantly have to sell it, or there'd have to be a whole new set of structures for different kinds of investment funds that invest specifically in cocos. Now, I suppose if there is a trillion dollar market in cocos, maybe there will be those funds, but at least getting from here to there is going to be problematic. Isn't that what, Patrick, you were saying about this being a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of getting the market going? Yeah, I think absolutely. The the kind of most immediate issue, I think, is that um, credit rating agencies like Standard & Poor's and Moody's don't yet recognize these instruments. They don't rate them, which is a kind of pretty essential prerequisite before investors get going. So um, I think all eyes now will turn to S&P and Moody's and whether they're going to actually start to rate potential issues out there um and whether i I mean i guess we'll 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 see uh the swiss banks maybe testing the market at some point yeah i mean just wrapping up this point is there feeling that you know swiss regulators have raced ahead a little bit to find a sort of golden egg within the absence of international consensus on whether or not this is a solution that'll really work Oh, I, almost certainly. The the Swiss, um, the U.S. and the U.K. have all been trying to push international consensus further along to, to push into harder regulation, whether it is on surcharges for banks or COCOs or forcing resolution plans where banks where you have a plan to break up big banks if they get into trouble. In general, they see themselves as the forces of, you know, tougher regulation. And the Swiss, by putting their money where their mouth is and coming out with an actual plan on this, are pushing the boundary on COCOs, just as the UK was the very first regulator to say anything about pay and that and their model for, you know, how to regulate remuneration was largely picked up by the rest of Europe. Patrick? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But um, interesting that the one of the only, or certainly the first cocoa that was out there, there's only a couple in the market, that uh, was from Lloyd's towards the end of last year. Um, and I think uh, that was launched as part of a, a big kind of semi-emergency recapitalization plan by Lloyd's. Um, and the yields that Lloyd's is having to pay on that stuff is is another deterrent for issuers. I think UBS specifically mentioned this morning that the, the effective yield on the Lloyd's stuff is about 9%. Why would they want to go down that route when they could raise debt for, for a couple of percent? So I think, you know, there's a lot of issues around around this uh, whole topic that need to be resolved before the market's going to go. Off the yeah, ground. it's a really fascinating one to follow. Um, Brooke, I just wanted to pick up on what else came out of your meeting today, uh, particularly in terms of resolution and too big to fail. 
There's um there's a big transatlantic debate on right now about resolution with the U.S., particularly Sheila Baer, who heads the FDIC, which basically takes over failing banks, the smaller ones in the U.S. And she has been pushing very hard for a you know a global resolution solution because she thinks you know we've got a way. The Dodd Frank bill has some provisions that allow um, the FDIC to extend some of the things it already does for smaller banks to bigger banks. And she thinks that's the solution. And she doesn't understand why the Europeans are not jumping on the bandwagon. And she's very annoyed that they're talking about a different strategy, which is called bail-in, which is where instead of you know breaking up a bank or taking it over, you go to all the creditors and you say, everybody takes a haircut, take a percentage loss on what you're owed so we can keep this bank going. And today, we heard some of the the German and Spanish regulators and the Belgians talking about why they, they kind of prefer the bail-in theory, because they fundamentally don't believe they're going to get a transatlantic global resolution authority. They, you know, while they would like one, they think it's a brilliant idea. They think we're, you know, decades. And one of them said light years. And so in the meantime, it, it, we'll probably have more taxpayer bailouts. And if you're going to have a taxpayer bailout in their point of view, they'd like to take a haircut off the creditors first. But isn't there, I mean, I hear what you're saying. And Balin is, you know, seems to be in vogue right now. Um, but there are just as many complications in terms of correcting creditors' rights in various different jurisdictions to get a sort of global framework on that. I mean, I don't think it's quite as easy as AFME and some of some of the regulators might want you to believe. I think a global bail-in would be incredibly hard. I think what the, these regulators who tend to be going for small bites would say is, when you sell this bond, it will have built into it these contractual terms over when you would take a bail-in. And... Um, and that it, little bits and pieces. I, I think they are seeing this as you know, taking bites out of the cookie in hopes that someday you get the whole thing. And no risk of sort of this being marred in endless litigation. Everything's always marred in endless <laughs> litigation. Have you looked at the U.S. bankruptcy courts? I mean, I think everybody just figures it's going to be a mess no matter what. And there's just a different philosophy on both sides of the Atlantic over which set of mess do you choose? It's not going to be pretty under any circumstance. Mm, very interesting. I mean, Patrick, what are people saying to you right now about resolution in terms of its prominence on the agenda. Yeah, I think um, Brooke's view of the consensus is what I, I, I've been hearing as well, and that, you know, bail-ins are a more manageable way to go and that you, you can sort them out on a domestic basis without the ne- necessity for, for cross-border resolution. Um, so I think that's likely to gain the upper hand in the debate. But the b- big question, I suppose, is whether we get anything uh, that can be announceable by the time of the G20 uh, meeting in Seoul in November, because I know that that's, you know, that's something that the Basel Committee uh, a few weeks ago said that they wanted to do, that they wanted to come out with some kind of grand statement on on the future direction of all of this. And um, it feels at the moment there's so much disagreement, particularly between the US and, and Europe, that um, having something meaningful to say is, seems unlikely. Now let's turn to the issue of compensation in the banks after it's resurfaced in the past week with news that Goldman Sachs has topped up some of its London-based bankers with share awards. Uh, I was at a conference this morning sponsored by uh, the chairman of Barclays about bankers' attempt to forge a new ethical compact with society and uh, putting, let's say, what they called the turmoil behind them and reintroducing um, what was called our word is our bond into bankers' relationship with the city. Um, And probably the most interesting, it was quite spiky, the meeting this morning, but one of the most interesting things was a comparison between the Archbishop of Westminster, who uh, effectively compared bankers to to pedophiles and this pedophile priest in the sense that a very small number of of banks had infected a much wider population. And it was a, it definitely drew some gasps of shock in the room. And, And I just wanted to sort of take you guys' temperature on 
you know, we've had Ken Costa from Lazard sort of speaking about this for a while. Um, we've had various different bankers willing to raise their head above the parapet and say, you know, we need to move forward. We need to put the recrimination behind us. We need to we will change on remuneration. We will change on sort of transparency, on customer service, on lending. We're making a bigger effort to sort of address all these societal concerns about the sector. But where do you guys think we are in terms of moving the relationship between banks and the public uh, in the UK and in the US forward? I think you've only got to watch an, uh, an episode of Question Time to see that the general public still hates bankers um, every time that the topic comes up in, in that kind of public forum. There's there's outrage, really. Um, so it, it, even if there is change on the ground in terms of the way banks treat their customers or the way that they pay themselves or whatever, it's going to take a heck of a long time before the public uh, tunes into that. Um, I think on the question of pay, there, there is definitely... Um, there have been signs of moderation to some respect in some respect but you know what credit suisse did a few weeks ago and what goldman has done now is only going to fuel the um the cynicism uh of the general public about you know how much people in the city get paid and then on on the other point of you know the relationship with with customers and the preparedness to lend um i think it'll be interesting to watch the initiative of the british bankers association which is now um, or it's kind of in in conjunction with the BBA, uh, a body, a, a, a kind of committee to deal with government that is now being headed by John Varley, the, the chief exec of Barclays. It had been headed by Stephen Green, the, uh, the outgoing uh, chairman of HSBC. But what they're aiming to come up with is some kind of new uh, compact, as you say, to uh, outline, you know, how banks should be treating uh, their customers and, and re uh, interrelating with society and so on. So there may be some concrete um, measures that come out of that, and I think we can expect that in a few weeks' time. Brooke? If you look across the Atlantic in the U.S., the news for the bankers only gets worse. You know, Bank of America this weekend had to suspend foreclosures. It's the fourth bank to do this because they've screwed up the paperwork. They're, they can't even throw people out of their houses properly. I mean... And the, there's a general view that the TARP program, which saved all the banks, and actually turns out to have not lost that much money, and, and in the end, the U.S. might turn a profit. The, it is such a loser of a program that nobody wants to mention it on the campaign trail because they have midterm elections coming up because everyone is just still so angry about how much money ended up going to the banks, even though, in fact, now it's starting to come back. Um, I, th I think we also see it in the U.S. with the appointment of Elizabeth Warren, who, although they couldn't get her appointed to actually head the consumer agency, will will sort of set the temperature there anyway from her advisory position. She is about as harsh as they come on the consumer advocate side. She is the bank's possibly their worst nightmare. And for the U.S., which has never had meaningful customer protection on a federal level for banker clients, this is going to be a big shock for the banks. You know, when they do things with their credit cards or they do things with their mortgages, you know, here they're sort of used to being hearing from the FSA or the Office for Fair Trading. They've never had a big boy regulator to pick on them for those kinds of behaviors. And I think it's going to be a really rough time for the banks and the bankers. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there's just so much longer to go on this issue because there's always going to be the flashpoint on comp too or coming up to another bonus season that's easy pickings for politicians, regulators, and the public here, and obviously for the media as well. Well, thanks for that. Now it's time for our regular feature from New York. Here's Justin Baer in the U.S. Thank you, Megan. This past week, we spotted a flickering light at the end of the tunnel for AIG. 
the two-year anniversary of the U.S. government's $700 billion TARP fund, a consumer-friendly ad campaign by Goldman Sachs, and we had mixed signals on the stock market's direction as we head into the fourth quarter. AIG struck a landmark deal with the U.S. government on Thursday that should help the troubled insurer repay its remaining bailout debts. All told, the U.S. had sunk $182 billion into AIG during the crisis. Under this accord, the government will swap its preferred shares for a 49% stake that will then sell in the coming months. The U.S. Treasury had uh, celebrated the AIG plan, which did coincide with the two-year anniversary of the troubled asset relief program that was hatched at the height of the financial crisis. Most big banks have already repaid those funds, and the government now estimates that the program will cost less than $50 billion. Some even predict the uh, program will eventually turn a profit. Last week also marked the start of the most expensive advertising campaign in Goldman Sachs' history. Ads from the bank began to appear in print publications and on news websites, and they highlight Goldman's role in raising capital that enable companies to grow and create jobs. In fact, last week's ad featured a renewable energy company. This is appropriate considering the bank is aiming for a renewal of sorts, too. Goldman has been off to a rough start in this post-crisis era on Wall Street, having to fend off allegations that put its own interests ahead of the client's during the crisis. Appealing directly to consumers won't help Goldman win more mandates or facilitate more trades on behalf of clients, but the campaign could take the edge off a company that has hid from the spotlight for much of its history. Uh, Thursday capped what was an unusually good month for the stock market, uh, third best month, in fact, in the past decade, and it was the best September since 1939. But the rally also came with an increase in short interest, a sign that there are diverging opinions on the market's direction from here, and trading volumes uh, continued to uh, be quite low. Uh, we'll get a clearer picture in the coming weeks, uh, when, uh, and, and we are, in fact, just mere days away from the start of earnings season in corporate America. That's it from New York. Back to you in London, Megan. Thanks, Justin. So that's it this week for Banking Weekly. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks again, Patrick. Thanks again, Brooke. And we'll see you next week. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.